Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Let's read verse 10. It says, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. They are halfway done with this two-mile-long wall, two-mile-long project. They started off strong in the beginning, started out having a great first half, and they overcome many obstacles. Nehemiah first heard about the ruins of the city of Jerusalem and the disgrace of the people, and he prayed and he was broken. And he waited four months. And then in the king's presence, he was sad. And the king said, what's up? And he shares his heart. And the king gives him permission. And not only that, gives him supplies to go help rebuild the wall. They make that journey there. And all of a sudden, he gets to the wall, waits three days. And now he has to overcome the next hurdle, which is gathering all the people together to start building this wall. He has to hype them up and encourage them, get them excited about this and behind this vision. And they actually come willingly. They had a mind to work, they had a heart to pray, and they had an eye to watch. But the job is not done yet. The game isn't over. There was still time to lose. Have you guys ever been watching a football game or a soccer game and all of a sudden, like halftime, your team was up and then all of a sudden after halftime, your team just tanked and they just like lost and you're like, what is going on? Maybe you were playing it. It's still like that half actually sometimes motivates the other team to actually put out that effort to try to stop the other team. See, when halftime comes, things can change. When we hit that halfway point, things can get worse if we're not careful. And just because you start off strong doesn't mean you're going to continue being strong or even finish strong. You might have, like, ran a race before, and you're like, yes, I'm doing good. And all of a sudden, halfway through, you're like, and you're about to, like, like, barf or something. That's the idea here. They're halfway through this project. And last week, we looked at the opposition from without. Today, we're going to look at the opposition from within and how sometimes the opposition from within can even be worse than the opposition from without. See, the enemy switches his tactics here. When he can't destroy us from the outside, he'll try to infiltrate and destroy us from the inside. We actually see this principle in the book of Acts. See, when the Church was literally birthed on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Literally 3,000 people were added to the church that day. And all of a sudden, revival started breaking out. People were getting saved. They were getting encouraged. And God was moving. But the Pharisees didn't like this. The Sadducees didn't like this. And so they actually imprisoned Peter and John. And they threatened them. They said, do not speak of this name. And they said, we'll do whatever is right in God's eyes. And so the church actually started getting persecuted. And the persecution started to heat up from imprisonment to being attacking. And all of a sudden, they were so angry that they stoned Stephen to death. And you would think that opposition from without would destroy, right? 
but actually persecution strengthened the church. It made them stronger and actually spread the gospel even further. Because when that one man died, Stephen, it caused the disciples to go out of their areas and the gospel went further and further and further. But then all of a sudden, the enemy changes his tactics and he makes church people against each other where there's drama, there's conflict from within, there's discouragement. He'll actually even sow some bad teaching. And so he actually plants bad teachers all around to infiltrate the church, to deceive them and push them away, take them away. But I love what this one guy said. I think his name's Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, verses 38 through 39. He was speaking to his colleagues about the disciples. And he says, if this plan or this work is of men, it'll come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you be found to fight against God. And I like that. You know why? Because he had the wisdom to say, hey, leave it alone. If it's of man, it's going to crumble. It's going to fade away. And everyone's going to stop being excited about it. But if it's of God, it's something you can't stop. It's something that you can't overthrow. And Nehemiah's work here in this book, in this chapter in history, wasn't of men, it wasn't by men, it wasn't for men, it was of God, by God, and for God. And when we do the work of God, you can't stop it. The enemy will try everything in his power to stop it or slow it down. But when we realize who's on our side, it'll change everything. Look at verse 10, it says, Then Judah said. Now Judah was supposed to be this strong, brave tribe. It was the tribe of the great kings. All these great kings came from Judah. King David, King Hezekiah, King Josiah. And ultimately, the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yet when this tribe here, Judah, said the strength of the laborers is failing, this discouragement brought a special and unique challenge to Nehemiah. Can you imagine if myself or Dustin or one of the other staff ministers said, you can't overcome sin. You'll never amount to it. You can't serve in the church. And we kind of just gave into that. That's the concept here. They were supposed to be a, a leading tribe and they were getting discouraged. They said the laborers, their strength is failing. There's so much rubbish. We are not able to build the wall. What do you do in that situation? What do you do when people are getting tired and becoming weak? Do you stop and then just let them rest? Like, hey, let's, all right, let's take a break, guys. Can you stop in the middle of a game? You can have a timeout, but that's like a, just a couple minute timeout to get a breather and then you gotta jump back in, right? Do you just slow down and take inventory? What are we supposed to do? When we're tired and depleted, should we stop sharing the gospel? Should I stop teaching because the work is too much? 
Should Abby stop singing and doing worship because she doesn't feel like it? Should we stop reading our Bibles because we don't understand it? I think there's times for adjustment that need to take place. But if we stop, the enemy's winning. We can never stop. After all, we are in the last days. What that means is time is running out before Jesus comes back for his bride, the church. The enemy is picking people off one by one with discouragement, with sin, and other things. We have a limited time here on this earth. Some of you, I don't know when the Lord's going to call you home. Hopefully, you might have a long life. We don't know. But time is short. Tomorrow is not promised to anybody. People need saving. Now, I can, I can relate to these workers. They said, dude, this job is so difficult. Have you guys worked in construction before? Anybody? Construction is exhausting. Like, you wake up before the sun's out, like at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., you travel to L.A. and you go work on a job site. Sometimes you're de de uh, demolishing a place or, and I love demolition. That's when you get the sledgehammers and you can just break anything. And you're just like, yes. And it's, it's fun, but then you got to clean up the rubbish afterwards. <laughs> and then you got to carry things. I know working for my dad, he carried countertops. Some of the, the two countertops I carried recently for actually our backyard were so heavy because they were two feet by, I want to say like eight or nine feet of solid granite. It was the heaviest thing I've ever had to carry because I could only have it with one hand and I had to stabilize it with the other. These guys are moving boulders. They're exerting themselves <laughs> to the point of exhaustion. Ministry is similar to that. Ministry is hard work. The Christian life is never easy. It's exhausting at times. And Judah here was tired. The job seemed never ending. And doubt and discouragement began to sink in and grab a hold of their hearts. Doubt and discouragement are two tools of the enemy that he uses to attack us. Doubt is to be uncertain about something, to believe that something may not be true or unlikely. Discouragement is the loss of confidence or enthusiasm. And this tribe lost confidence in the ability to work. They're like, we can't do it. It's too tough. Put yourself in their shoes. Many of the people that were Jews lived with the ruins destroyed. They lived with this problem for the longest time. They're like, we can go back to that. That's fine. They had their enemies surrounding them and threatening to attack. They were exposed. Judah got their eyes fixed on the problem. They set their mind on their lack of strength. They set their mind on the rocks, the rubble, and the ruins. See, discouragement magnifies the problem where faith magnifies the Lord. And when we get discouraged, we get so fixated on what is bad and we kind of complain about what's going on in our lives. And we tend to magnify that. And when people look at our lives, and we, they're like, hey, how's it going? 
we're either always complaining or there's always something bad going on. Now, I'm not telling us to be fake Christians like, oh, Jesus is great. God's good all the time. Like, that's lame, okay? All of you have a baloney reader. You know when people are being fake. Don't you agree? You know when people are like, dude, stop lying to me. Come on. We're called to be real and genuine. But faith magnifies the Lord. What are you doing? What am I doing? Am I magnifying my problems or am I magnifying Jesus? That will tell me if I'm discouraged or not. That will tell me if I'm actually having faith in God or not. Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 says, Paul writing to the church of Philippi, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now check this out. Paul is in prison. He could have been magnifying, goes, oh my gosh, it's cold in here. I wish I had a blanket. Like He could have been talking about all the problems in prison. But instead, he goes, no, Christ is going to be magnified in my body. Did you know your body, each one of our bodies here, is a magnifying lens? And we're either magnifying Jesus or we're magnifying the problems. Paul says, I'm going to magnify my Lord and Savior with all the boldness as always. Dang. How is he able to do that? With Christ. Because Christ was in him, the Holy Spirit was upon him, and God's commandments are his enablements. See, there was a similar issue uh, happening hundreds of years before Nehemiah's day, before the children of Israel were even in the land. They got delivered out of Egypt. They are walking through. They spent a year at Mount Sinai where uh, God gave Moses the law. And then now they're traveling to the promised land. They get to the edge of the promised land and Moses sends out 12 spies. He says, I want you to go spy out the land to see me, tell me how it is. So for 40 days and 40 nights, I think they go out and spy it out. And they come back and these two guys kind of have a pole and a cluster of grapes on top. And they're like, dude, it's amazing. The land is flowing with milk and honey. It basically is saying it was luscious, it was green, there's rivers. And look at the fruit that we brought back. These grapes. Everyone was like, wow. But this is what they responded. But the men who had gone with them said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They said, the land is everything God promised, but there's giants in the land and we can't conquer them. And Caleb and Joshua, like literally look at each other, like, because they were the, one of the two spies going in with these other 10. And they're like, did they see the same thing we saw? And they like kind of object. They're like, are you kidding me? No. Like, let's go in and conquer it now because God's on our side. But these 10 literally persuaded Two million people. And because fear and discouragement sunk into people's hearts, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years. We need to get our minds off of our problem and back on the Lord. 
Discouragement can come from our closest friends, our closest family members, our siblings, or even at church from people. Because they have, their words hurt the most because they have the biggest influence in our lives. We hear those voices of, you can't do this, it's too hard, it's too difficult. We might even say that ourselves. But we have an option when we hear those voices of discouragement to ignore them and continue with the vision that God has given us. Look at verse 11, it says, And our adversaries said, they will neither know or see anything. So we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. The enemy was saying this. They're like, hey, they're not going to know when we come and attack them. It's going to be suddenly. The enemy uses fear in our life. See, fear and faith are enemies. They cannot coexist with one another. You're either full of faith or you're full of fear. Fear paralyzes individuals, paralyzes us, cripples us. And fear is contagious. Just like I shared how the other 10 spies, that fear literally persuaded the rest of the 2 million people. The enemy was threatening them, saying that we're going to kill them. We're going to cause this work to cease. My kind of question is like, how? How did the people of Judah find out the enemy was saying this, right? Look at the next verse, verse 12. God is amazing here. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us 10 times from wherever place you turn, they will be upon us. God had faithful Jews there to overhear what was going on, to go and tell the leadership to make plans and get ready. When God wants other people to know about something in your life, there's a way of how God brings it up to the surface. And that's God's grace at work. Because he says, I love you so much that I'm going to bring this to the surface. Notice 10 times they came back and said, hey, the enemy's going to attack. 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 Now, if we were one of the people building the wall, that would chisel away at our confidence. And it'll start to dwindle us and cause us to be discouraged. Because the enemy is ruthless and relentless. But it's a good thing that our God is restless. And he's also relentless. He's relentlessly pursuing you. He doesn't get tired. He has more power. It says, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. The enemy was going to come from every direction, from the north, the south, the east, and the west. If you're taking notes and you actually look at verse 7, and it talks about Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites, and the Ashdodites, each one of these are located in a different direction. Samaria which Sambalat is the governor of, was located to the north of Jerusalem. The people of Ammon were located to the east. The Arabs were on the south, and the people of Ashdod were on the west. So every side, they were surrounded by their enemy. And they were getting these words that they're going to come and attack. 
They're going to come. And the people of Judah were getting discouraged. They were losing hope. How do we combat discouragement? How do we not lose confidence? How do we stay strong when we are surrounded by our enemy, when we hear those voices speaking to us of discouragement, those fiery darts from the enemy? See, Nehemiah and the Jews, they were already praying, they were working, and they were watching. But even in the midst of those things, they were still losing heart and they were losing confidence. Galatians chapter 6, verse 5 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The word grow weary literally means give up. He says, let us not give up. He says, do not give up in this work. Do not give up when you're reading. Do not give up when you're serving, when you're sharing the gospel. Don't give up. Because you're going to receive in the end. That word lose heart means get discouraged. He says, don't get discouraged. Don't give up and don't get, don't get discouraged. Stick it out. You will see. God will help you. The portion I love about this, the part I love about this chapter is Nehemiah comes up with a practical solution and a spiritual solution. I want you to notice that Nehemiah did not just pray and leave it in God's hands. He goes, all right, cool, we're done. He prayed, but then he did something practical. He took action. The practical part, he sets up guards around the weak sections of the wall to protect the people. Look at verse 13. Therefore, because of the threats, because of the enemy, because of those 10 times they are getting word of what the adversaries are going to do, Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Nehemiah turned the city of Jerusalem into a war zone. He turned every person in this city into a warrior. He goes, Guess what? We're creating an army today. They start handing out swords. They start handing out bow and arrows. Like, hey, who's good with a bow? They're like, I, I am. They grab the bow. And they, all of everybody in the city has weapons now. They're an army. <coughs> he puts people in front of their homes to defend them and equips them with swords, spears, and bows. He didn't underestimate, underestimate the enemy. He took their threat seriously, and he says, all right, fine, they're not playing games. We won't either. Let's arm ourselves. And this was a practical solution. It was interesting. Today, every Wednesday, uh, the staff ministers and um, kind of the leadership at the church here, John, myself, Dustin, uh, Dave Bustamante, Jared, and Bree, we all have a meeting from like uh, 10 a.m. to almost like 12 sometimes. And around like 11 o'clock, all of a sudden, we hear this loud, like barking. And it sounded like two dogs going at it. And we're all like, what is going on? We freak out. And so someone goes to open up the door because we're on the uh, chapel green room, which is kind of by the sanctuary or the chapel over there. And we open it. 
and it sounds like these two dogs are just going to town. And there's this pit bull. He saw his reflection in the, the window and started attacking the window. But it sounded like our hearts kind of dropped. We're like, dude, what the heck? And all of a sudden, once we saw the dog, we like closed the door because the dog was going to come towards us. And this, like, it was, pit bulls, like, look, look, look muscular. Have you seen them before? They walk like they're, it was just like, it was this beast of a thing. And we're like, holy moly. And so we were like, dude, what should we do? And then we're like, dude, we got to do something because we can't just let this dog go around campus because it could hurt somebody. And so uh, I think Jared went out that door. We went out another door. And it was funny because as we were going down the hallway, um, John Mata grabbed some scissors because, all right, let's go. And I took out my knife and I was like, we got this. <laughs> let's take it on. And we, we go outside. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> we see that right, we're looking for it. And I'm kind of like, I do not want this dog to come up on me. And the dog's just like over there. And like her, the owners come out, and it's these two old, uh, small Mexican ladies, and they're trying to get this dog back. And all of a sudden, we see the dog coming. And so me and Bree, we go back inside. We, we open up the door. We're like, I, I am not going to encounter this dog. I do not want to get like chopped to pieces. Uh, and we come back in, and all of a sudden, it goes at John's face to bite him. He literally had to knee it and like kind of kick it away, and he actually punched it once. But then he had like his the scissors in the other hand in case, because it was a vicious dog. It literally slobbered over him and like kind of chomped at him a couple times. Um, and then thankfully he had didn't have to do more. And then the owners came and were trying to like feed it like food, uh, but then it goes around to the other side and goes after Brian. And it kind of comes towards Brian, and Brian's like, oh, great. And he goes, you want to play? And so he tries to play with the dog and grabs it by the collar, and it's, like, chomping at him still. And it actually bites his arm. And thankfully, he had, like, a biker jacket on, so it didn't go, like, through. But, and then he kind of, like, got it, and the owners came and took it away. But I shared this story for some reason. I don't know. Equipping people. And um, the enemy attacking. Actually, I have no idea why I shared that. What? I guess so, yeah, giving everybody weapons. You've got to be prepared when the enemy comes and attacks. I love when you share a story and you can't drive home the point after a good story. <laughs> Anyways, verse 14, it says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I love that. Nehemiah says in verse 14, he looks around. I like how the NLT puts it. He says, then I looked over the situation and called the people together. Nehemiah did something practical. He equipped people with swords and weapons and stationed them at parts of the wall where it was kind of broken down. They were still rebuilding it. But he looks at them. He looks into their eyes. And he can see fear. He can see discouragement. And he realizes he needs more than just a practical protection. They needed to be encouraged. And here Nehemiah encourages them spiritually. He speaks into their lives. And I think we all need someone to speak into our lives. That's what church is so important for. 
is that we would hear God's voice through the, the message in his word, that we would be encouraged and built up. And so he speaks to the nobles, the leaders, and the rest of the people. And he says three things. The first, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This phrase is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible. He told Joshua at the age of 80, he said, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I am with you. Now, we might think that's easier said than done, Josh. You can't just tell someone not to be afraid. That doesn't work. Or is it that simple? Do we tend to complicate things? Because God's commandments are God's enablements. If he tells you to do something, he's not going to tell you to do something, and he's not going to like, leave you to fend for yourself. He's going to tell you to do something, and he's going to give you the power to do that. That's who God is. He not only provides the instructions, he provides the strength. He provides the wisdom. He provides the knowledge. He provides everything you need for the task that he is telling you to do. Take Noah, for example. God says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. Bye. Design this, the boat yourself and do whatever you want. No. God gives him specific instructions. He says, I want you to use this type of wood. I want you to use this. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And he goes, oh, yeah, by the way, rain's coming. And Noah's like, I've never heard of rain. What is rain? <laughs> God equipped him with everything he needed. God's commands are God's enablements. In that same portion of Numbers, Numbers 14, verse 9 says, Caleb is speaking to the people, Caleb and Joshua, and they say, only do not rebel against the Lord. Nor fear the people of the land. I love this next phrase. For they are our bread. We're going to eat them for breakfast. Do not fear them. We are going to devour them. They might be giants, but they're going to be our bread for breakfast. Their protection has departed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. I love that. He's like, dude, they're going to be our bread. We're going to just devour them. So, don't fear. Second, remember the Lord, great and awesome. This is the reason we should not fear. is because the Lord is with us. The Lord is for us. See, Nehemiah knew the strength of those threats, but he also knew the limitations. And above all, he knew the strength of his God and that he was on his side. We need to look and fix our eyes on the greatness of God. When God is magnified, then our perspective changes. When we behold God and his glory, when we see him as the lamb that was slain, when we see him as the servant, when we behold God, our perspectives are going to change. Is our God greater than our problems? The answer is yes. But do we see that? Do we believe that? Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. We looked at that on Sunday, right? Set your mind on God, on His glory, on His greatness, on His power. 
There's no sky that can contain, no doubt can restrain all that he is, the greatness of our God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 21 says, And you shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God is great and awesome God. And he's among you. I love that last phrase, is among you. He's in the midst. Because that's what Jesus says. In Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. In Revelations, it says that he's walking in the midst of the candlesticks, which is the church. Jesus is present here right now. He's present in every life of a believer, at the home of every believer. He is there, and he is great, and he is glorious. We need to remember that because we often forget that, don't we? He says, remember this, because we forget, and then we get our eyes fixed on the problem. He says, bring this back to your mind. Keep dwelling on this. Keep meditating on this. That's why we even take communion. We're to remember Jesus' love and his sacrifice on the cross. And last, the third thing he mentions, he says, fight. He says, fight for your brethren. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives. And fight for your houses. This is an exhortation. He says, don't give in to the fear. Rise above it. Notice, I want you to underline the word for. He doesn't say, fight with your brethren, <laughs> fight with your sisters, fight with your parents, fight with them. He says, fight for them. Too often, we're fighting with each other, right? We're bickering, bickering and arguing. We're fighting with each other. We need to fight for each other. What are you fighting for? Are you fighting for your families? Are you fighting for your siblings? Your mom or your dad? Are you fighting for your friends? Are we fighting for our church? What are you willing to do to protect those who you care about? Nehemiah says, hey, if you really care about your family, you will do anything to protect them. And that's what kind of John did, dude. John's adrenaline started rushing in that moment, and I could tell. He got into like his boxing mode. And he's just like, dude, I'm ready to go to town on this dog. <laughs> and I was going to watch from a distance through the door. <laughs> he was ready. What are we willing to do? Some of us can be very protective, I think. We can be protective of our friends. We can be protective of our family. Are we willing to fight? Not against each other, but against the enemy, the kingdom of darkness. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12 says, Be of good cheer, and do not let us be strong for our sorry, and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Verse 15. And it happened when our enemies had heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. I love this. Literally, God brought the enemy's plans to nothing. Everything they feared literally 
gone, vanquished, destroyed, eliminated. The plans of the enemy in pieces. And it was through Nehemiah and the wisdom God gave Nehemiah to practically address the situation and spiritually. I love that. And they actually they said, all right, let's go return. Let's start building again. Verse 16. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears and shields and bows and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the houses or the house of Judah. He says, basically, he knew what the enemy was capable of. And just because God brought it to nothing doesn't mean like, all right, we're done. You guys can put your weapons away. Let's start building again. He goes, no, no, no. We're not going to take any chances. We're not going to trust the enemy. And so they split the workforce in half. Half of them are there to protect and the other half are there to work. This means they actually could have finished the wall in half of the time. They could have done it that much faster. They finished it in 52 days and they could have finished before that if the enemy hadn't attacked them. But I love this phrase at the end of verse 16. The leaders were behind all the house of Judah. If you remember correctly, Judah was the ones that were discouraged, correct? Judah says, everyone's strength is failing. The, the rubbish is too much, and we are not able to. And what did they do? They positioned people <laughs> behind their house because he says, we'll hold you up. We'll help you out. We'll keep you built up. We'll keep you encouraged. And that's what leadership is there for. They don't condemn those that are discouraged and say, come on, trust God. No, they get beside them and says, hey, we're going to do this together. We're going to fight this battle together. We'll pray together. We'll build together until the wall is complete, until the task is done. Verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand held the weapon. Dude, in one hand they have like a shovel, in the other hand they have a sword. They're looking around every corner, taking every precaution. Verse 18, every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. If you have your own Bible, underline the word sword in verse 18. Everyone of the builders had his sword. The word sword represents the word of God. Every person had the word of God. Do we have God's word on us? And are we ready to use it at any time? Pastor David talks about carrying his switchblade. It's not an actual switchblade. It's his pocket Bible. Every one of us are capable of carrying around a pocket Bible on our phones if we have a phone. If you don't, you, have, you can grab a pocket Bible. But more importantly, I think we need to carry God's word in our heart. Because when we surround our heart with God's word, the Holy Spirit can use those scriptures at different moments. And he can bring up a scripture to your mind like that, one that you forgot about. And you can use it to share the gospel with somebody. 
Do we have God's word on us at all times? Are we ready in season and out of season to share with those people who are dying without Christ? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and to joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. In other words, there is nothing that can go deeper in piercing into your being than the word of God. Because it is not only physical here. This thing is alive and it is active. Maybe you've actually been in a Bible study and all of a sudden there's certain scriptures being read and you're like, dude, it's like almost like Josh or a different teacher is talking to me. That's because God's word is active and alive. It's searching out your mind. It's searching out your heart. But there's another scripture I love. 2 Samuel 23, verse 10. 2 Samuel 23, verse 10, talks about David's mighty men. Have you guys ever read about David's mighty men? See, before David became king, he had a group of men that were kind of the outcast. They were not the crim of the crop, but they followed him into battle. And it kind of describes some of them. And in this portion in 2 Samuel, it says about this one guy, It says, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. In other words, he was battling so much, his hand became frozen to the sword. Have you ever like held something so much and you had almost peel your hand off of it like that? That's what my mom had to do to my little brother when he grabbed a curling iron. Like when he was younger, he didn't know. He was a baby and my mom was curling her hair and all of a sudden he went up and grabbed it and my little brother was screaming and she had to peel off of his hand, his hand off the curling iron. This guy clung to God's word. It was actually a sword, but it can represent, represent the God's word. He clung to it, his hand froze to it. Are we holding tightly to God's word and his promises like that? And are we rushing into the battle claiming that victory because God is on our side, because we are more than conquerors. And literally Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And yet we get so crushed, so paralyzed by fear. It's because we don't have a firm grip on God's promises, on his word, and what it means for us as believers. Do we have God's word ready to use at any time? See, the Christian life is building and battling these two things. We're called to build and we are called to battle. We are called to battle the enemy, not each other. And we are called to build up one another. Are we building each other up? Are we encouraging one another? Are we looking at one another to see when we are discouraged? When we can pick one another up and say, hey, can I pray for you? What's going on? In verse 19, then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. 
So they, they originally started working out on the wall side by side, right? But because of half of the people are working and half of the people are protecting, there's gaps now in the wall. And he says, hey, if the enemy were to come and attack us, this guy is going to blow a trumpet and we're all supposed to rally to that section and go and fight. Did you know we are called to work and battle until that trumpet sounds? And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says there's a trumpet that's going to be blasted and it's going to call the bride of Christ home. We are called to work until that time comes because through that trumpet, God's going to gather us all together to him. The work is great and extensive. The work can get overwhelming. If we think about all the people that aren't saved in our lives, if we think about maybe all the mistakes we have done, we can get overwhelmed by what's in front of us. Just as we looked at the ruins a couple of weeks ago, and we looked to God, we got to take our eyes off the enemy and look to God again. Look to his awesomeness. Look to his greatness. In verse 20, it says, our God will fight for us. I love this. Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. That means you shall be still. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, and the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight against your enemies to save you. God's not just going to leave you by yourself to fight your battles. He says, let's do this together. Just like Nehemiah said, hey, let us rebuild. He says, let us fight. God wants to help rebuild and God wants us to help fight. Verse 21, so we labored in the work. They were spent and were being spent. They were exhausted and half of the men held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At that same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by night and a work party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off clothes, except that every one took them off for washing. These guys got stinky really fast. <laughs> they were rebuilding, getting sweaty, and they didn't wash their clothes until they had to absolutely need to. In other words, they were prepared to work and they were prepared to fight. Are we prepared to build and are we prepared to battle? Do we have the sword by our, by our side? And are we ready to continue in the process? What should we do? when we get tired, when we get spent, when like Judah said, the strength is failing, when the, bro the problem seems so enormous and we feel inside like giving up. I can't do this. I want to throw in the towel. And in those moments, what should we do? Should we stop? Should we give in? Should we say, hey coach, I want out of this game. As I was thinking about this, the Lord reminded me of a poem I read a while back. And this poem I've gone to during some difficult seasons because it reminds me and it fills me with so, such comfort, such joy, such confidence in God. And I want you guys to listen. 
So if you guys are slouching, if you guys are tired, sit up for a moment. Listen and say, Lord, speak to me. This lady, Annie Johnson Flint, wrote this poem called, He Giveth More Grace. And it goes like this. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he adds his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ear to the days half gone, when we have reached the end of our harbored resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load to upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unknown to man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth, he giveth, and he giveth again. In other words, he doesn't stop giving. When we've hit the end of ourselves, that's when God says, all right, I can begin to work. I can pour out. I can strengthen. And it's been times where I've been spent. I am done. I, I'm like, God, I got nothing left. Literally, he gives me the words. He gives me the studies. He gives me his wisdom. And I almost sit back. I'm like, God, where did that come from? And he gets the glory because I'm done. It's in weakness that God works. And Paul the apostle realized this truth. He says, I will boast in my weakness because the power of Christ. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient and my grace is made strong. My power is made strong in your weakness. So don't give up because that's when the Lord wants to move. That's when the Lord wants to pour out his strength, his spirit and give you all that he has because God is a giver. If one thing you can be sure is that God is a giver and he wants to give people salvation, he wants to give you peace, he wants to give you freedom, he wants to give you his power, he wants to give you the wisdom and the knowledge, he wants to give because a father loves to give. And he loves to see the smile on his sons and his daughters when they are blessed with these gifts. It brings his heart joy. So open up your hands wide and say, Lord, would you give me them? Don't be afraid to ask because God wants to give.